I'd like to start with a, a question someone pinned up on the board yesterday concerning uh, no self. When used in the context of dukkha, impermanence and no self, wouldn't it be more correct to say no soul? When a person is in the zone or flow, playing a sport or involved in a creative act, he she experiences the sense of the self or I disappearing and is at one with the activity in the moment. When the self disappears, that sounds like no self. Um, I think I have to reiterate the point that I think it's actually a mistake to claim that the Buddha said there was no self. I think that is simply not the case. Despite what you'll read in numerous Buddhist books and hear in all sorts of contexts. Um, when I was trained in the Geluk uh, school, again, this point was very, very clear. <clears throat> uh, one of the first things I remember having hammered home to me by my Tibetan teachers was that um, the key to understanding shunyata or emptiness is to recognize what exactly is negated in uh, the idea of something being empty. And if you don't get that right, you will not understand what emptiness means. So what is negated is not the self. What is negated is a very particular a reified or fixated kind of self. The example that uh, Geshe Dagi, who was one of my first teachers, gave, which was always stuck in mind, he said it's like when you're on a, in a busy crowd of people and then somebody calls out, oh, there's a thief, there's a thief, stop that thief, and everybody in the crowd turns and looks at you. That experience you have then, unless you're an arhant, is you, you will be uh, intensely self-conscious. So I think the point of um, what is being uh, uh, questioned here is not the self per se, which uh, in the Gelug school with Tsongkhapa and others is not a problematic idea. We are all selves, we are all persons, we are all eyes, that's capital I, I, um, and that is a purely necessary and functional term. The notion self is no more problematic than the notion cushion or chair or building or tree. So the problem lies in what in English we would call self-consciousness, acute self-consciousness, which is a kind of crippling um, relation we have to ourselves. Uh, we feel a kind of exaggerated sense of our own almost uh, awkwardness, nakedness, um, something quite uh, troubling, something very, very fixed, something very, very um, impervious to change, and something that makes us emotionally feel quite alienated and cut off, as in the example. And I think this follows likewise with this uh, example given in this note, that when we are fully engaged in an activity in which we are flourishing as persons, and the example given here is playing a sport, involved in a creative act, we do have an experience of losing that acute sense of self-consciousness. Self-consciousness is, by its nature, very debilitating. Um, when you are giving a talk, for example, if you're not used to public speaking, one of the great obstacles is to overcome self-consciousness. Stage fright, basically, is that you are acutely self-conscious and you cannot uh, get over that, get over that fear of what people will think or that you won't perform correctly or you'll be embarrassed. That's where the problem lies. Now, this is not saying there is no self. It's not saying there's no soul. Soul, again, is, a, I think, a term that, again, is non-problematic. Um, it's, uh, it's part of our lexicon. It's part of our language. I don't see any reason, really, to reject it. 
But again, you'll find books on Buddhism, unfortunately, that say Buddhists don't believe they have a soul. Soul is just the English word for what in Greek is psyche, uh, in Latin is anima. It's that way we have of talking about what moves us, what animates us. And, and that is clearly a human experience that we all have. And soul is as good a word as any to use it, uh, to, uh, to um, refer to it by. So yes, going beyond self-consciousness, going beyond that, that, that crippling, a limiting sense of being stuck in one's own self-referential awareness me, that's where you get stuck. That's where Mara kicks in. And you become literally paralysed at times, unable to respond, unable to act. Therein lies the problem with self. Not the fact that there is or is not a self, but the fact that acute self-consciousness is a uh, highly limiting um, and very painful uh, experience that prevents us from living and flourishing fully. Now, if we go to Nagarjuna, who I'm sure you've all heard of, again, we, don't, we find that in his main work uh, called the Mula Madhyamaka Karikas, the verses from the centre, um, likewise, he's not negating self at all. And in fact, one of the verses I find in this text, which is most revealing here, suggests that he's a very much aware that our sense of self is a highly ambiguous one. Let me read you this verse. If body and mind were me, I would come and go like them. But if I were something else than body and mind, they, body and mind, would say nothing about me. Now, I know that's a bit cryptic, but... It was on reading this verse that Tsongkhapa became enlightened. This was the verse that woke him up to the meaning of Madhyamaka philosophy. He had a dream one night. And um, he was he, a dream of being uh, blessed, being hit on the head by a scholar called Buddha Palita. And then he woke up from the dream and looked at Buddha Palita's commentary that he was then studying read those lines and had a great understanding, a great insight. Now, what's, if body, it actually technically says, if the aggregates were me, if I were identical to my body, my feelings, my perceptions, my inclinations, my consciousness, then if I, me, self, were identical to those things, then I should be just as transient and fluid and changeable as they are. But I'm not. The I is a constant. Nagarjuna is recognizing that an I, a sense of self, is a sense of constancy. And yet everything within our experience of our body, our feelings, our perceptions, our thoughts, and we see this very clearly in meditation, are endlessly fluid and changing and coming and going. But I doesn't appear to change in that way. And then Nagarjuna says, but if the I, if I was something other than my body, my feelings, my perceptions, my inclinations, my consciousness, then those things would say nothing about me. In other words, the only way that I can have any sense of who I am or who you are is by Noticing or seeing your body, hearing your voice, listening to your story. And the only way I have of knowing anything about me is by attending to my bodily sensations, my feelings, my thoughts, my emotions. I'm happy, I'm sad, um, I'm not feeling well, um, I'm anxious. In other words, everything that we can say or know about me comes through our awareness of one of our physical, emotional, or mental uh, uh, parts or aspects. So in other words, 
what I think Nagarjuna is showing, which goes back to what we were saying yesterday, is that the language of um, identity and difference, it either is this or it is not this, is inadequate to describe the sense we have of being a person. The person is not intelligible in terms of the body and the mind and everything else, but if you take the body and the mind out of the picture and think of the self as a separate thing, that is unintelligible too. So again, what Nagarjuna is pointing to is this, uh, is this middle way, this notion of contingency, which he also calls emptiness, in which I, or actually anything, cannot be understood in terms of either being identical with or different from the things that make us up. In other words, the notion of self, the notion of person, is not intelligible in terms of the primary categories of our logic and grammar. Let me give you a, a more... I'm not, there's no more philosophy today, that's it. And I know this is not, for some of you, perhaps terribly easy to grasp. It's very abstract. Um, but I find it very, very helpful uh, in, in, in clarifying what we're talking about when we talk of self. This is John Keats. I mentioned him uh, a few days ago in passing, as I rather rather <clears throat> stupidly said, he might have been a Pacheco Buddha. Anyway, this is Keats from a letter in 1818. As to the poetical character itself, it is not itself. It has no self. It is everything and nothing. It has no character. It enjoys light and shade. It lives in gusto, be it foul or fair, high or low, rich or poor, mean or elevated. It has as much delight in conceiving an Iago as an Imogen, Shakespearean characters. What shocks the virtuous philosopher delights the chameleon poet. And then he talks of Shakespeare. He says, the Shakespeare was the least of an egoist that it was possible to be. He was nothing in himself, but he was all that others were or that they could become. And this is what Keats calls uh, negative capability, which is a quality, he said, Shakespeare possessed so enormously, negative capability, which he defines in this famous text. That is, when a man, or we'd say nowadays a person, is capable of being in uncertainties, mysteries, doubts, without any irritable reaching after fact or reason. <clears throat> irritable, by the way, uh, at Keats' time, didn't mean feeling slightly pissed off about something. <laughs> irritable actually meant reflexive or reactive. Keats was trained um, for a while as an apprentice surgeon. And in those days, if a limb was irritable, it meant that it was like a, a knee, knee jerk, like that, reflex. That's what irritable means. So in other words, when one is capable of being in uncertainties, mysteries and doubts with any reactive reaching after fact or reason. And we see that when we're meditating, particularly when we do a, a meditation like, what is this? In fact, this Keatsian phrase is the most succinct and accurate definition I've ever come across of that meditation, although Keats knew nothing about it. Irritable means that we ask a question, we open ourselves to the strangeness and the mystery of our experience, and yet the mind is reflexively always trying to come up with an answer, a category, a concept, a term. We're very uncomfortable with staying with uncertainty, with contingency with the fluidity of our identity rather than something fixed. And in many ways, the practice of, of mindfulness, the practice of awareness, 
is about learning to be with that uh, without a kind of uh, knee-jerk grasping onto this or grasping onto that. Now what, of course, is, is telling in Keats is that this is all tied up very much with his, his reflections on the nature of the poetic experience. And I think to, nowadays we'd probably say the creative experience that what uh, inhibits creativity is uh, this sense of being a self, a fixed self. Once that begins to be let go of, once we really relinquish the, uh, the, the constraints or the limitations of self-consciousness, that's what allows us to imagine. That's what allows us to um, create... Uh, characters. It allows us to think out of the box, as we'd say today, that we could be the least of an egoist, as Keats says, that it is possible to be. Nothing in himself, but he was all that others were or that they could become. So not only does this text point to um, uh, the artistic process, it also points to the uh, the point that, the, the, that this uh, letting go of self-consciousness, becoming less preoccupied with me, opens us up to the world of others. That it's, uh, it, 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 the, the, the problem with the notion of self-grasping, as the Buddhist put it, is not just that it is a cognitive mistake. It's not just that we're somehow getting it wrong in our views and our opinions about who we are. But the other problem with self-grasping is that it serves as a kind of anaesthetic. It actually has an affective a consequence of numbing us or, or, or closing ourselves down to others, and particularly to the suffering of others. Now Keats, I think, gets this very well in terms of the imagination, um, Shantideva and others recognize how the self is the great uh, inhibitor of our being able to fully empathize with the suffering of others. It's quite easy to empathize with those we consider to be mine, like my family, my children, my parents, my friends, my fellow Rastafarians. But outside of the border of me and mine, we can be utterly indifferent to another person's suffering. And we see, we see this a lot, you know. Um, people who are considered to be other, we, uh, those we don't know, those who are not of our nation, our religion, our beliefs, our views, our skin colour, then we can actually be quite cold regarding their pain, whereas it, if it were someone we knew or loved or felt identified with, then that pain would be so much more difficult to, to tolerate. We, we, we are able to feel ourselves in the skin of the other person. So the whole idea in, in, in Buddhism, and this is also true, of course, in Christianity, is that one extends oneself of, of us or we um, as far and wide as we can. In Buddhism, right from the very beginning... It talks of all sentient beings. And one's uh, metta, karuna, mudita that Martin spoke of this morning, our loving kindness, our compassion, um, extend to all quarters, you find in the Pali texts. The, 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 the result of this practice is that these feelings begin to infuse uh, your consciousness. And I think that's only really uh, possible through the eroding and the dismantling of our acute, perhaps neurotic, uh, self-consciousness, but not because we have a self. Another image that um, I found quite uh, inspiring is this idea that the Buddha um, is like the sun, S-U-N, um, and in fact, I put up a picture, a third image, an iconic image of the Buddha um, on the board 
where he's depicted as a kind of comic book sun, you know, a circle with little flames around the edge. So rather than as a pair of footprints or just a tree and a seat, you have an image of the Buddha as the sun. It's the only one I've ever seen. Uh, it's in the British Museum. The, um, the, the, the idea here is that not only was the Buddha supposed to have come from a family that were probably sun worshippers at an ancient time, he belongs to the solar lineage, but also that even through his um, life, he was called the kinsman of the sun. He was identified with the sun. Now, nowadays, we'd perhaps see the sun a little bit more, a little bit more realistically than they would in those days. But nonetheless, the sun is is fire, basically, and the sun is burning itself up in order to give life through light and warmth uh, to whatever, well, particularly whatever it encounters on this earth. So this is an image of the kind of ideal perhaps we might aspire to or to live a life in which we, uh, the burning up or the, 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 the entropic um, destruction of ourselves um, is directed in the form of light and warmth to others. So our practice therefore, uh, both in terms of wisdom, in terms of compassion, is very much one of giving ourselves away, just in the, as the sun gives itself away, and in a sense burns itself out in giving life elsewhere. Uh, Don Cupid, my uh, favoured Christian theologian, uh, makes a big thing out of this idea of what he calls solar living that one, one seeks to, as it were, be as selfless and as giving as the sun. So all of these images that, um, and all of these ideas that I've, I've sort of been uh, reflecting on are all ways of trying to actually get a sense of what kind of person, what kind of self or soul we're seeking to cultivate through this path. And so this brings us inevitably into the sphere of, of ethics. And that's what I want to focus on uh, for much of the rest of this talk. I'm going to just read some passages out that um, I think provide us with a, a, a foundation in the early canon for uh, a Buddhist ethical uh, position. And the first passage uh, concerns... The, um, the king of Kursala called Pasenadi and his wife Malika. Pasenadi was probably the most important uh, sponsor of the Buddha in terms of giving him access to the park in the Jetta's Grove and providing the security that he needed to perform his work. And Persenody, in fact, is the character, the lay character in the canon with whom there are the most recorded dialogues. So he was obviously quite close to the Buddha. He was also a tyrant. wasn't a very nice guy. Now, on that occasion, the text says, King Persenody of Kursala had gone together with Queen Malika to the upper terrace of the palace. And the king said to the queen, Is there Malika... Anyone more dear to you than yourself? Uh, nowadays, this is called fishing for compliments. <laughs> and the queen replied, There is no one, great king, more dear to me than myself. But is, <laughs> but is there anyone, great king, more dear to you than yourself? And the king says, well, for me too, Malika. <laughs> there is no one more dear than myself. <laughs> then King Persenadi descended from the palace and approached the Buddha and related to him the conversation with Queen Malika. Then the Buddha recited this verse. 
having traversed all quarters with the mind, one finds none anywhere dearer than oneself. Each person holds himself most dear. Therefore, one who loves himself should not harm others. It is not quite the conclusion you expect to be drawn. First of all, there's an acknowledgement that, yeah, that, 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 that is true. Everyone, fundamentally, considers themselves more dear than anyone else. There might be some exceptions in this room. I hope there are. <laughs> but <laughs> there seems to be a very realistic recognition that this is the way we are. This is the way we are designed. This is the way we have evolved uh, to be primarily concerned with ourselves. But the Buddha then very cleverly, I think, draws from it a conclusion that one would not expect. He's not saying, well, therefore you should go out of your way to really get what you want. He says, no, once you recognize that, once you recognize that everybody feels that way, then you shouldn't harm them. If you, if you, if you can empathetically recognize that just as you feel about yourself, so others feel about themselves, then that is the foundation for not uh, causing any harm or pain to another person because you will be, as it were, um, uh, doing violence to them in the very heart of what is held most dear to them. Now this, of course, almost inevitably reminds us of the primary ethic in, in one of these maxims of Christian ethics, do unto others as you would have them do to you. It's exactly the same idea. In fact, that's an idea that comes from Rabbi Hillel. It's the first recorded or known instance of that ethical idea. It's about 100 years before Jesus. So Jesus was already drawing on a tradition within uh, Judaism. But curiously, if we go to the, back to the Sutta Nipata, which is this very ancient stratum within the, uh, the Pali Canon, and in particular verse 705, we, 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 we hear at an even earlier date this ethical principle being uh, stated. This is the Buddha. As I am, so are they. As they are, so am I. Comparing oneself with others, one should not kill or cause to kill. So in other words, um, the ethic of not killing, of not harming, um, is uh, based upon the recognition of the equivalence or the equality of self and others that other people feel just feel about themselves just as you feel about yourself. And that is a, a, um, something that, again, is not, again, intellectually, you'll say, oh, yeah, of course. But again, if you look at your behavior, how you actually respond, let's say, to your, your child who's hurt his leg as opposed to the drunk lying on the pavement in the street who's in pain, you don't feel the same way, I suspect. As a Buddhist, you'll try to. You'll say, oh, may all beings be happy, may all beings be happy, may all beings be happy. But <laughs> is, it really coming, is it really coming from a heartfelt, uh, natural, intuitive response? Or is it something you think that you should feel? So my sense is that all of these ideas about the Buddhist idea of self, or self-consciousness, let's say, as a kind of limiting, enclosing uh, condition in which you feel intrinsically cut off from others, is one of the greatest... Um, hindrances or obstacles to a genuine, empathetic, um, 
ethical identification with others. So the notion of, of, of not-self um, is, is, is more than just an aspect of wisdom, as it's usually presented, but it is very much uh, also the ground that opens up empathy, the capacity to identify with others. Um, one of the most remarkable uh, passages that I've seen uh, concerning the, um, uh, the foundations of compassion in Buddhism is a passage that occurs once, possibly twice, I'm not quite sure, I think just once, in the Mahavaga, uh, which is one of the key texts of the Vinaya. Uh, for those of you who don't know what the vinya is, the vinya means the mana- li- literally it means training or discipline. And in the Pali Canon, you have um, the basket of discourses that we talked about yesterday: the middle length, the long, the numbered, and so on. And then you have another basket of texts called the vinya, the monastic training. And uh, people often especially lay people, think that that's not going to be terribly interesting because it's going to be for the monks. And a lot of it is. But strangely, these two collections called the Mahavaga and the Kulavaga, the the great collection and the shorter collection, although in reality they're about the same length, um, in fact contains all kinds of stuff. All lots of, of, of teaching, of stories, of things that have nothing to do with monastic discipline. Um, usually there's a sort of loose connection. But it's in, I think, the, it's in the Mahavaga, section 26, that we come across this little story. Now at that time, the text says, a certain monk was suffering from dysentery. He lay fallen in his own excrements. Then the Buddha, as he was touring the lodgings with his attendant Ananda, approached that monk's dwelling place and spoke to that monk, What is your disease, monk? Lord, I have dysentery, but have you no one to tend you? No, Lord, but why do the monks not tend to you? I am no use to the monks, Lord, therefore the monks do not tend to me. Then the Buddha addressed the venerable Ananda, Go, Ananda, bring water, we will bathe the monk. The Buddha sprinkled on the water and the Venerable Ananda washed him over. The Buddha took him by the head, the Venerable Ananda by the feet and having raised him up, they laid him down on a couch. Then the Buddha had the monks convened, the monks in the monastery, and asked, why are you not attending to your sick brother, monks? And the monks reply, oh, this monk is no use to the other monks, therefore we don't tend to him. I find that a little bit harsh. (laughs) But uh, I can't take that entirely literally. But I think the point being made is that, uh, again, look at how you treat people who are not well in your community. If someone gets one of of these terrible things like ME or... So quickly does the person come to feel isolated. It's not that you would consciously say, well, he doesn't do anything for us, therefore we don't do anything for him. But look at how a sick person, particularly as they're sick over time, becomes less and less and less part of the community. You don't deliberately exclude them, but somehow they're left a lot on their own. This is the great suffering for many of chronic illness, is loneliness, is isolation. People don't care or seem to care or let's say just forget about you. And this is the Buddha's response. Monks, you have no father, you have no mother who might tend you. If, monks, you do not tend to each other, then who is there who will tend to you? Whoever, monks, would tend to me, the Buddha, he should tend to the sick. Whoever, monks, would tend to me, he should tend to the sick. Now this is 
going back about to about 400 BC. And yet I think for many of us, we'll immediately uh, associate it with that famous passage in the Gospels, Matthew 25, where the Buddha says, when you were naked, you clothed me. When you were sick, you cared for me. When you were hungry, you fed me. And the disciples say, we never did that. And he said, every time you did that for someone who was sick, someone who was in prison, someone who was without clothing, you did it for me. Again, it's exactly the same idea. And again, it's this idea that um, the... Uh, the, the, I mean, what's being pointed out here, I think in a, in a very beautiful way, and I think it's, in, it's a great pity that this text is not better known. Uh, to me, it actually is more... Um, it speaks to me more powerfully than the Mahayana Buddhist ideas of working for enlightenment to save all sentient beings, which frankly I've always found rather abstract. Here we have a sentient being, a sick monk lying in his shit that the Buddha and his disciple wash and bathe, pick up, put on a bed, and then the Buddha... um, uh, tells the other monks in no uncertain terms that this is not acceptable. And then he draws this remarkable conclusion that if you really tend to me, if you're really interested in awakening, in what I have to say, and what the Buddha has to say, then you should tend to the sick. So the Buddha is actually identifying himself with the sick. And he's pointing out that... Um, this process of becoming more wise, more enlightened, is intimately tied to your concern for those who are abandoned, outcast, sick, lonely, isolated. So we have, I feel, here um, a, a, a a series of texts that very much... Um, point to the connection between our, uh, our understanding about the nature of self, etc., etc., and the affective uh, consequences of uh, looking at the world, experiencing the world in such a way that leads to the basis of an ethical uh, relationship which is founded upon empathetic identification with the other. But we can take this further still because as soon as we are concerned with uh, the other, we are concerned with uh, society, uh, with the community. And there's a couple of parables uh, that the Buddha gives that give us a glimpse of his vision of what kind of society um, would be built upon the foundations of his teaching. The first is uh, the analogy or the parable of the ocean. The second is the parable of the city. Now, the, the parable of the ocean occurs in the Udana, in that text I mentioned yesterday, the one we have, the blind men and the elephants. This is Udana 5.5. And the Buddha gives a number of... Uh, he compares his Dhamma Vinaya, his teaching and his discipline, his training or his, you know, his vision, uh, to, an, to the ocean. And he gives eight similes. And I'm just going to touch on three of them. Just as the great ocean gradually shelves, slopes, and inclines, and there is no sudden precipice, so also in this Dhamma Vinaya, this Dharma and discipline, there is a gradual training, a gradual course, a gradual progression, and there is no sudden penetration to final knowledge. The Buddha's a gradualist. (laughs) (laughs) And it seems to actually be in a sense, um, uh, suspicious of the idea of also a sudden insight. I think in practice, these sudden breakthroughs occur, and I suspect if you just look at the Buddha's own story, 
the Enlightenment itself doesn't appear to be something that was a gradual thing. It seems to have broken through. But nonetheless, he seems to want to emphasize that his practice is one of cultivation, of qualities, of virtues, of insights over time in a systematic, developmental way. And again, we've seen that when he talks of the the Eightfold Path, this is something to be cultivated, something to be developed over time in relation to others. If you just think of the Eightfold Path, we already have there a notion of the practice involving not just my own state of mind, but my relationship with the world. We start with the way we see things, the way we think about them, the way we speak, the way we act, the way we work. Speech, acts, work are not solitary activities. They can only be done in relation to others. So the ethical dimension of the practice is built right into the core idea of the Eightfold Path. We cannot separate the two. And yet I think Buddhist practice is often uh, presented as a means of becoming proficient in certain spiritual skills that you do in the privacy of your own practice. And practice, as I pointed out already, tends to mean what I do in my own life, in my own mind, my discipline, my meditation, all this stuff. And that, I think, has become overly privileged in Buddhism to the exclusion of the relational dimension of the practice. And I think Mahayana Buddhism tries to correct this tendency. But my concern is that it's sometimes rather grandiose. Whereas we find in in these early texts a much more concrete application of compassion in specific situations. And this is something the Buddha considers is a gradual development of the human person over time. But coming to the image that's, I think, relevant, particularly relevant here, the text goes on, just as whatever great rivers there are, the Ganges, the Yamuna, the Achiravati, the Sarabhu and the Mahi, on reaching the great ocean, they lose their former names and identities and are just called the great ocean. So also those of the four castes, Nobles, Brahmins, merchants and workers, having gone forth from home to the homeless state in the Dhamma and discipline, abandoned their former names and identities and just called followers of the Sakyan Son. S-O-N, S-O-N here. So in other words, the Buddha uh, envisages a community, a way of uh, being in the world, that is no longer defined by your social position at birth, but is actually one that is founded on equality. Now this, of course, is an explicit critique of the um, Brahmanic uh, caste system that was already in place at the Buddha's time, although it wasn't as well developed as it came to be, for example, in the Laws of Manu, which was a later text. But nonetheless, the Buddha is envisioning what we might today call a classless society, one in which there's no longer any rulers, priests, workers, merchants. That's not how the person is defined by their role, but each person is defined in terms of what they do, and that is what gives them their role. We saw that passage a few days ago. It's by your actions that you are a farmer, by your actions that you are a ruler, etc. It's not, div- it's not ordained. There's, nothing, there's no essential identity that you come into the world with. Now, of course, in our culture too, particularly since the, the, the European Enlightenment, a similar move has been made to value the person in terms of his or her specific potential, which is sought to be cultivated through education and so forth and so on, rather than thinking of the person in terms of their social status or their identity, their class at birth. That's very much at the roots of modern 
concepts of liberal democracy. And yet the Buddha, again, has already somehow intuited that possibility in seeing his sangha, his community, as one which is a kind of model for a classless society. Now, quite an interesting point here is that this image of rivers disappearing into the sea is one that was already around at his time. We find it in the Upanishads. This is from the Mundaka Upanishad. Just as the flowing rivers disappear into the sea, losing their name and form, thus a wise person, freed from name and form, goes to the divine person who is greater than the great. So not only is the Buddha um, offering a a critique of uh, the social order in India, he's also offering a very radical re-reading of a classical Brahmanic idea. And the classical Brahmanic idea is that uh, when you lose your name and form, which is a term that the Buddhists also adopted, your name and form means your um, your specific identity. The Brijyaranika Upanishad um, speaks of name and form. I've got that text here. Oh, here we are. Um, name and form. This is what the Brijyaranika Upanishad says about that. It said, at first everything was undifferentiated. It became differentiated by name and form so that one could say, oh, he is so-and-so and has such-and-such a form. Therefore, all beings are differentiated by their names and their forms so that one can say, he is so-and-so and he has such-and-such a form. Now, what, uh, Brahman, what the, the Upanishadic practice is trying to do is to uh, dis-identify uh, yourself with your name and your form and then thereby merge with the great ocean of undifferentiated Godhead, Brahman, uh, from which you originally sprang. Now, again, we may feel that this is, in a way, what the Buddhists are doing too. It's about dissolving oneself in order to return to the great ocean of emptiness. And you'll find sometimes people speaking in that vein. But that's really an idea that is closer to Upanishadic thought than it is to Buddhist thought. What the Buddha's doing is he's taking that idea that about the purpose of your practice being to get rid of yourself and dissolve back into the one, and he's turning it into a social doctrine. He doesn't say it's your name and form or your identity, who you are as a person, a distinct person, that dissolves back into the ocean of God. But he says that through joining and becoming part of this community, your social identity is lost, whether you are a Brahmin, a noble, a warrior, a priest, or so on. And then he follows uh, this image of the... uh, the, the, the dissolution of class identity uh, with this phrase just as the great ocean has one taste the taste of salt so also this dhamma and discipline has one taste the taste of freedom now this is a much cited passage but it's usually cited out of context in other words it's not cited as uh, anything to do with uh, with, with social or uh, with, with, with social liberation, it's cited very usually to do with some kind of spiritual liberation, inner freedom. Whereas the context here is clearly to do with being freed from a restrictive class or social identity. That's where the freedom lies. Of course, it also lies in being free from greed and hatred and delusion. But what's striking about this analogy is that the Buddha does not see freedom simply in terms of 
inner liberation, or liberation with a capital L, that's far more a kind of Brahmanic idea. He sees freedom as a freedom from the oppressive structures of society as much as from the oppressive structures of our own neurobiology. In other words, craving, grasping, selfishness, etc. So we get a glimpse here, and I have to acknowledge, um, as I keep having to acknowledge, uh, that these passages are in some ways uncharacteristic. That we find them in the canon, but that the implications of them do not seem to be developed by the Buddhist tradition. And in this case, it's abundantly clear that despite Buddhism flourishing in India for 1,500 years, it seems to have had virtually no impact on the structure of Indian society. And in fact, if you go to India today, despite the Indian constitution that Nehru set up, which abandons all notion of caste, caste is such a reality for most Indians, except Muslims, uh, that it is still one of the great blights in the whole of Indian culture. And as we mentioned before, Ambedkar and his followers are still trying to find social justice in a supposedly secular Indian society. So what the Buddha was complaining about all those years ago is still very much a live issue in India today. It's less of an issue for us, I think, in the West. Uh, but nonetheless, um, what I feel slightly um, disappointing is how these ideas uh, that the Buddha had about society do not seem to have really been put into practice. And Buddhism quite quickly became, I think, another kind of somewhat inward-looking religious tradition in India, rather than a potential uh, movement that would move towards radical social change. And finally, um, the parable of the city which I think again points very much in the same direction suppose monks a man wandering through a forest would see an ancient path and he would follow it and he would come to an ancient city an ancient capital that had been inhabited in the past with parks and groves ponds and ramparts a delightful place Then the man would inform the king or a royal minister, Sire, know that while wandering through the forest I saw an ancient path. I followed it and came to an ancient city. Why do you not renovate that city, Sire? Then the king or royal minister would renovate that city and sometime later that city would become successful and prosperous, well populated, filled with people, attained to growth and expansion. So too, monks, I saw the ancient path, the ancient road travelled by the Buddhas of the past. And what is that ancient path? It is just this noble eightfold path, namely appropriate seeing, thinking, talking, and so on. And I followed that path. And by doing so, I have come directly to know contingency and the four noble truths and having directly known them I have explained them and this good life monks has become successful and prosperous popular widespread and so on so we have uh, an image here of someone who goes into a forest and stumbles across the ruins of an ancient pathway and follows those uh, flagstones or whatever they are until he comes to the ruins of an ancient city. And the Buddha then goes to the king and says, please rebuild it, and so on. So there is the idea that the Buddha's teaching is um, a path, an eightfold path, that leads to, and this is the interesting bit, it leads to the Four Noble Truths and the idea of contingency or conditioned arising, which are the points I've been trying to somehow emphasize in the last days. 
Now what this seems to me to imply is that the practice of the four truths founded on the principle of conditionality is again not just about achieving some kind of personal salvation or liberation or nirvana, but is actually a template for the rebuilding of a city. I mean, in context, of course, we have to understand that this, in the Buddhist time, there was the idea that there had been many, many previous civilizations and world systems and so on going back in long, long periods of the time. And the Buddha saw what he was doing was really simply recovering uh, a vision of life and practice uh, for his time and his place. So he saw himself as restoring something. And that something was not just lots of liberated arhats, but was actually, in his words, um, a city that would become successful and prosperous well-populated, filled with people, attained to growth and expansion. So he has this uh, vision of his practice, of his way of life, um, giving rise to another kind of civilization. And remember, civilization is rooted in the Latin word civitas, which means city. And again, we often have a romantic idea of the Buddha and his followers are living in the forests and the mountains and the caves and sort of shunning worldly life and being terribly kind of uh, renunciant. But in fact, the Buddha's major centers were all in close proximities to the biggest urban uh, centers of his day. Rajgaha, Savati and Vaishali. These were the big cities of the cities, perhaps too grand a word. These were the main townships, uh, centers of power of his time. And what, um, so in that sense, the Buddha's teaching is, in a way, uh, directed at an urban community. It's directed at a community that's no longer just tied to the seasonal rounds of agrarian or agricultural life. And in fact, in the first sermon, he describes the two dead ends, the two extremes, as being gamma. He says that, that indulgence and mortification are gamma. I've translated it as uncivilized. It's usually translated as some, something like unworthy or whatever. But the word gamma literally means village, hip-like. The, the Buddha's comparing these dead ends to something that goes on in villages. Um, and this might strike us as strange. I think for us this is difficult because for us the city has become a problem rather than, uh, it's often you know, inner cities. We don't feel drawn very often to the city. The city's polluted, the city's too busy, noisy, we need to get away. We have romantic ideas about living in a village, perhaps. But the Buddha seemed to recognize that what he was saying was addressing itself to these, new, these communities that were just for, forming. Urban communities were only just beginning in India at the Buddha's time. In other words, places where there could be concentrations of people who were able uh, to divide labor able to specialize in developing skills, crafts, philosophies, ideas that could not have been accomplished in a village. So you need that body of uh, community, uh, that number of people, in order to drive what will then result in a culture or a civilization. And so in this passage, and again it only occurs once in the canon, you find um, the idea that the four truths, the idea of conditioned arising, are connected very much with the idea of creating a culture or a civilization. They're not just about leading to nirvana. See, the Eightfold Path is what he discovers first in the forest, the path, and the path leads to the four truths. And the fourth truth 
is the path itself, which leads to the four truths. And that's exactly how the first sermon is constructed as well. I have woken up to a middle way. Then he gives the four truths, the fourth truth being the middle way. And I think we can detect in these passages, in these very disparate texts, a similar pattern. Uh, a pattern that does not present the Eightfold Path as the path leading to the end of suffering, which is the dominant traditional view, but the path leads to the Four Truths, the fourth of which is the Eightfold Path, which leads to the Four Truths. In other words, there's a sense here far more of ongoing process, of spiraling, of feed, positive feedback looping as the framework of practice rather than seeking some transcendent end result. And that's where I'll stop today. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.